Hello, it is Ryan, and we could all use an extra bright spot in our day, couldn't we? Just to make up for things like sitting in traffic, doing the dishes, counting your steps, you know, all the mundane stuff. That is why I'm such a big fan of Chumba Casino. Chumba Casino has all your favorite social casino-style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere with daily bonuses. That should brighten your day a little. Actually, a lot. So sign up now at ChumbaCasino.com. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. BGW. Void. We're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions. 18 plus. The following podcast contains explicit language. Hello and welcome to the Slate Political Gab Fest for April 5th, 2018. The Caravan of Gab Festers edition. I am David Plotz, Battles Obscure. I am back from vacation, which is, explains the pep in my voice. I was in Colombia, South America, which I strongly recommend. We may talk more about that later, but man, do I recommend Colombia. And John Dickerson of CBS This Morning in New York is also back. Hello, John. Hi. Can you have pep in your voice? Don't you have pep in your step? Oh, I don't Why know. Why can't you have pep in your voice? Well, I suppose you can, but I just have always heard it when it's in your step. And then it leads me to the question of what in God's name is pep anyway? It's a little extra I, oomph. Yeah, it's an oomph. I have an oomph in my voice. My One of my kids tried an energy drink yesterday for the first time, and he it was crazy because he was so peppy. It was – those things are dangerous. There was pep. That was pep in a voice. That sounds um, like sugar. That. Yes, yeah, sugar plus caffeine plus who knows what else. That other voice, that is, of course, Emily Bazelon of the New York Times Magazine, who was back from nowhere. She helmed the Good Ship Gab Fest brilliantly while we were gone through storms and uh, whirlpools. Hello, Emily. Hello, hello. And if pep is short for peppy, then you definitely can have that in your voice. So I, I rescind my previous Not that we've cleared that up. Before we get to the show, I learned an amazing fact on Twitter. Emily, I don't know if you noticed this too. Someone was tweeted at us asking John about his first career. Oh, yeah, that was awesome. Atari. John was a member of the Atari Youth Council. And now he's agreed to do an interview about it, I believe. I can't wait. So, John, oh, come on. Just give us the 10 seconds. What do you mean you were on the Atari Youth Council? Youth Council makes it sound, well, I guess what it was actually called is the Atari Youth Advisory Board, which sounds more corporate, but the Youth Council sounded like we were all like little brown shirts or something. But um, (laughs) when I was a kid, we were all like introduced to computers. I had a TRS-80, and then I exchanged that for an Atari 800, which was the first... Uh, I think the 400 was the first model. Anyway, I had an Atari 800. I was like a little computer programmer. And because I was a little computer programmer with a guy named Robert Albritton, who is now the publisher of Politico, actually, we, you know, wrote programs, uh, (laughs) um, did some things with computer games, uh, which uh, may have... Well, anyway, we we played a lot of computer games. Anyway, we worked at the Consumer Electronics Show in, I think it was 1982, when that was just starting. And then they formed this thing, the the um, Youth Advisory Board, which was an effort to get input from their computer users. It was mostly on the computer end, not the video gaming end. Um, and uh, and then I got, as a result of doing that, I got, they flew us out to um, California. We had like three days of meetings that I kind of barely remember um and and then we were given an atari 1200 which was the like sleek new computer and then not that long after that they're um they were basically swamped by pcs and apples and that <laughs> so was the you end didn't of that. save them right they they took your advice and <laughs> went out of business. business but i remember one of the first things we got uh, in addition to the 1200 was a, a copy of excel 
for wow. um, for the Atari, and we were supposed to use it and make recommendations and do things like that. Yeah, and I had a wow. uh, a BBS, which they were called back then. Um, you know, which I guess would essentially have been a, my own web page that you could dial into. That is amazing. I look forward to many more stories of that. On this week's GabFest, Robert Mueller has reportedly told the president that he is a subject, but not a target of investigation. What on earth does that mean? Emily can explain. Then President Trump's impulsive fury tweets about immigration and Amazon. What impact might they have on public policy? And then why does EPA Administrator Scott Pruitt still have a job? Plus, we'll have cocktail chatter. And a reminder, we are just four weeks out from our St. Louis show. We have a great guest, Jason Kander, the former Secretary of State of Missouri, former Senate candidate, and now voting rights organizer and activist, is going to guest with us. The show is on May 2nd at the Sheldon Concert Hall in St. Louis. There's still some tickets left. It's going to be very, very fun. Please go to slate.com slash live for more details and to get tickets. A Washington Post story on Tuesday dropped two rocks in the pond of the Russia investigation. The first is that Robert Mueller, in an effort to persuade the president to sit for an interview, presumably, told him or told his lawyers back in March that he, the president, is not a target of Mueller's investigation, though he is a subject of Mueller's investigation. Mueller, secondly, also apparently said that he was planning to create two reports about his investigation. The first, which might come out or might be completed and sent to Rod Rosenstein in June or July, would be about the possible obstruction of justice. And the second would be more about Russia and Russia and interference inclusion. And that might come later. So, John, first of all, where did this story come from? So the the answer seems to be Mueller's well, team does not seem to be le- yeah, leaking at right. all. So that suggests it has come from the president's lawyer. No, Is that right? Got. So I, one of the reasons we know that it's not, I mean, well, another development this week, not to, and there were other, many other developments, but one of the developments this week is that uh, the special counsel responded in a 44-page memo to the assertion by Paul Manafort's legal team that, that the special counsel had gone beyond his brief in um, charging Manafort for crimes or alleged crimes he'd committed before he ever was connected to the Trump administration. And he produced a memo that uh, Rod Rosenstein had or the approval from Rod Rosenstein allowing the special counsel to go ahead and go after Manafort. It was almost a year old. It was August 2017. The whole reason I'm going through this is we're just now learning about that authority from Rosenstein. The fact that that was never leaked, even when the president was calling this a witch hunt, even when Manafort was first charged and the president and Manafort's lawyers said that that uh, that Mueller had gone beyond his scope of his investigation. The fact that that didn't leak, even when it would have been in the, the special counsel's um, benefit to have it leak into the papers, that gives you some sense of, of how restrained he is. There is some feeling that this could have come from the president's legal team on one side of it or the other, one being the president saying, hey, I'm not a target. Isn't that great? You see, I told you. Nobody was suspicious about my behavior. Another side said, or another argument was, that this was leaked by the people who said, no, no, it's a trap. Being told you're not a target is meaningless, and it's just an effort by Mueller to get you to come in and talk and say things that will get you ultimately in trouble um, because of your because of the tendency not to tell the truth about things that, that took place. At first, this was a bombshell, and then, as I thought about it and read more about it, it se- I was wondering, Emily, whether— if you're a target, 
like, isn't being a subject a sort of a precondition for someday being a target? And isn't being a sub? Don't you really want to be a witness and not a subject? <laughs> or just far, and far away, right? <laughs> just away. And doesn't this put you like the difference between a subject and a target can be like two minutes? Yes. Um, and 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 then finally, also the reason this report is interesting, uh, right, is that there's an argument that you can't you can't indict presidents anyway, so he could never be a target. Because he's a president, and therefore, if it's going to have to go through the impeachment route, you would never say he was a target, even if you had a picture of him with the smoking gun in his hand. Wait, John, you've gone through like the entire topic in one question, so let's narrow it. So first, Emily, (laughs) what is the distinction between subject and target, and why does it matter? And is John correct that that one is – is on the road to the other. One can be on the road to the other. So being, I think it's helpful to talk about it as being the criminal target. So like once you're identified in that way, it's the investigators and the whoever the prosecutors are saying like, you're our guy, you're the person we're trying to indict. If you're a subject of the investigation, then they're interested in you. They could turn you into a criminal target, but they haven't yet made that decision. So it gives you more incentive to cooperate if you're like a normal person in the story, not the president. In this case, the peril that Trump's legal team sees is that if he goes in and does this interview and makes false statements or gives Mueller a reason to believe he um, acted corruptly, that crucial word in the obstruction of justice statute, when he fired Comey or when he did like the 12 other things that could be material for an obstruction charge, then Trump would be putting himself in jeopardy and essentially moving himself from subjecthood to criminal target zone. So, yeah, I don't think it's hugely meaningful that Trump hasn't been yet designated a criminal target. If if he had been, that would have been really shocking, and we would not want to see that piece of information leaked in this way. There is this whole separate discussion about whether you can indict the president, which I don't know if we want to talk about right now or not. We, we will get to that in a second, but let's con- continue on this subject-target distinction for a second. Emily, I don't understand. Maybe, maybe I'm a, a malicious uh, Decepticon. I don't understand why prosecutors need to tell people they're criminally targets or subjects. Why can't they just lie about it? Why can't they just be like, "Oh, we just want to talk to you"? If I've, kept, why, why is it necessary to to give them a heads up warning? By the way, we want to charge. Well, you remember with that little well, thing I- called the Miranda warning, where we say to you, like, anything you can you say can be used against you. You have the right to a lawyer. All those things have to do with questioning someone in a setting in which they could be in criminal jeopardy. And so it's actually really important that we don't let prosecutors lure people into speaking without lawyering up, without having a sense of what their rights are and what their exposure is. And also, isn't this in the context of, um, and this might be a useful side road to go down briefly, isn't this in the context of negotiating team about getting him to testify? Doesn't he have to testify if a grand jury has been impaneled and or his only remedy in theory, if you wanted to push it all the way to the wall is to plead the fifth. But presumably Mueller is trying to get something short of that um, and therefore is entered into these negotiations with his lawyers. And so the first reasonable question a lawyer would ask is, OK, what, what is the context of this conversation that the president is going to have with you? What is he? Is he a witness? Is he a subject? Is he a target? Right. Exactly. All of those things are true. I mean, I think, John, the answer to your question is, I mean, I think that Trump has to testify. I think the Supreme Court precedent on the Nixon tapes makes that clear. But if Trump wants to challenge that, he can go to the Supreme Court and we can get a definitive answer to whether the president 
um, has to obey, you know, a subpoena or a request for testimony, a special prosecutor. You know, Bill Clinton decided to do it and didn't push the question to the wall. Um, And yes, I suppose Trump could plead the fifth and that would be fascinating given that we're not, you know, so to go back to this question of whether the president can be indicted, what's going on in that context, no clear Supreme Court law at all. But a Justice Department memo from 1973 renewed in 2000, which says kind of briefly that the Justice Department has concluded that the president cannot be prosecuted. And then I think just in a sentence or two, it includes the word indictment in there. That, you know, Mueller will feel bound by that memo. Walter Dellinger, former Solicitor General for Clinton, made an interesting argument a week or two ago that actually the president could be indicted because you have to you have to that's the only way to preserve the criminal charges because otherwise like the time for them could elapse and so you could indict a president even if you can't force him to go through a trial but that you know from Mueller's point of view indicting the president is not a by the books move and i think that's why we all think it's so unlikely that he's going to take it upon himself to do that can i ask a question about that emily the justice department memo office of legal counsel memo that you're talking about, is that referring only to federal indictment and a federal prosecution? Can a state, does this, any of this apply to a state? Could the state of New York take the evidence that's been gathered insofar as it applies to a crime that might have been committed in yeah. New York and and prosecute? That's a really good only, question. I don't think we know the answer to that. I would have thought the reason or one key reason why the Department of Justice right. or why the federal prosecutors could not indict is that federal prosecutors work for the president. And that's a... The executive, the Justice Department is part of the executive branch, which is supervised by the president, and that's weird. But state attorney generals don't have anything to do with the president. And so, and also, I don't see how the State Department of Justice could bind what state attorney generals could do. Well, in fact, the um, memo in 2000 from the Office of Legal Counsel says very broadly that the Department of Justice concluded in 1973 that the indictment and criminal prosecution of a sitting president would unduly interfere with the ability of the executive branch to perform its constitutionally assigned duties and would violate the constitutional separation of powers. So I don't think that completely answers yeah. your question. Yeah. Yeah. Um, it doesn't say federal only. And uh, the constitutionally assigned duties, I suppose, could argue extend to a state prosecution. But the idea of violating separation of powers would seem to be limited to a federal and prosecution for the reasons you gave. The president, it seems to me, has three options uh, with response to Mueller. One is pound sand. Two is take the fifth. And three is cooperate. Pound sand is you don't have the right to ask me. Uh, I'm the president. I can do whatever I want. I have powers that are, you know, that you're infringing on to make a constitutional challenge about whether you can ask these questions at all. The yeah. other is to say, sure, you can ask them, but I have a con- I have a constitutionally protected uh, right to to defense against self-incrimination. And those are two different things. Right. Yeah. And he absolutely and he could do the first. And there is some suggestion that he is at least noodled with the first. Um, by basically saying a version of what President Nixon said, which is when a president does it, it's not illegal. Um, right. And therefore, if you're looking into obstruction under the power of the unitary executive, I can fire my FBI director for whatever damn reason I want. And therefore, uh, you can't ask me questions about that because it's perfectly legal and there are no grounds to have the conversation. The reason I think this is interesting is it feels like he could go down that road. And I, in some, you know, people's responses to this they say no no no. it's all very clear he absolutely has to testify as if that would 
cordon off his ability to try to make this claim. He may make the claim and it may not work, but I still think it's a possibility that he might make that claim. I agree with everything you just said. Can I ask you guys a question? Yes. <laughs> you have to negotiate with my lawyer first, and then I'll decide. <laughs> All right, I've, I've whether taken to... care of that. You have to answer with questions, unless you're going to plead the fifth. Okay, so you know the part John mentioned earlier in our quite messy uh, way through this about reports. So we know from this news report that Mueller is supposedly contemplating these two reports that presumably go to Rosenstein. That's what the statute calls for. It doesn't call for Mueller to make them public himself. And also, the statute may or may not, there's an interesting debate about this, discourage him from writing a long Ken Starr-like report. In any case, these two reports, supposedly the obstruction one comes first, and then the one about Russian interference comes second. I don't get that. Like, I had the same question. I don't understand. Like, I really don't understand. So if the uh, I mean, maybe this is all, of course, false, but let's just go with the news version that we have right now. Why are we going to be able to understand the evidence for obstruction if we don't know what the underlying crime was or wasn't? I feel like that's going to be a big Wait. problem politically and legally and just like in my brain. I, how, you know, whatever Trump did or didn't do vis-a-vis Comey's firing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. All these moments of interference depend on whether he was interfering with something that was like significant and real or not. So I just feel like that that the question of order there has been bugging me. Well, now, wait a minute. Does this work? A policeman's rushing into a house. You don't know for what purpose the policeman is rushing into the house, but you see him rushing and you tackle him. Do we need to know for the purpose, the, the reason he was rushing to make a claim about my obstructing him? Well, you don't need to. to I think for the purpose of making a prosecution, uh, I don't know. You may or may not need to know the reason. There may. Well, yeah, but, but you would. But, but, but like, certainly you would want to know. Well, sure, definitely. We would want to know. You would want to know. And, and there's no reason to well, issue. I'm not sure why you need to rush into issuing a report about it, as Emily said. But wait, says, is Trump the when, policeman? No, no, he's the tackler. Trump is the tackler. Trump. Yeah, so then Jim absolutely the you want to know, because if the, what if the, the tackler is trying to stop the policeman from because discovering he knows evidence that incriminates him? Right. Like, yes, you right. need to know. Well, but that's interesting. Yeah, okay. But, st- okay, I know this is an analogy. We'll put this to bed in a minute. But, but <laughs> it wouldn't necessarily be, you would want to know, right? Because, yes, and part of this is also, not only part of it, the central claim, right, is... Whether the president, what was in the president's head, so you need to know kind of the facts of the of the yes. investigation. Now, yes, uh, well, um, okay, all right. So yeah, I think you I, gotta. I, I'm mystified I, by that. I have I share your mystery. I had the same thought, Emily. I really wondered. I was hoping you were going to explain it. No, I don't think it makes sense. I'm hoping it's just wrong, honestly, or it reflects facts that we don't know. I mean, one thing about the Mueller investigation, which I continually enjoy, is that there are these parts of it that we don't know about. I mean, that was clear. The other thing I really enjoyed about the long report that we were referring to earlier with the information about Manafort, and it says these huge redacted sections. Yes. So clearly there are other people yes. being investigated, well, probably people we don't know about yet uh, and connections being made. So, you know, maybe we just chalk this up to the greater wisdom of the Mueller team and we small mortals on the outside cannot begin to understand. That um, strength of the Mueller process will could very well be the president's best defense. Indeed. But it's also just great to see, you know, 
especially since there's so many other things in our lives where people are behaving in a way that is totally shambolic and against all the normal practices and rules to see somebody sort of doing the Joe Friday routine in a sustained and methodical way. All right, last um, single point, which is not really a question, which is, but Emily just confirmed this is correct. Going back to why Mueller would issue a report and wouldn't, if he felt he couldn't criminally indict the president, the the idea would be he would present something which presumably Congress would get a hold of and Congress could then make a decision about whether this, this these were grounds for impeachment or not. So even if the, even if Mueller was not going to criminally indict, he could present something which which would be uh, evidence or a, a, a brief that might be part of an impeachment case. Is that right? Absolutely. And that's the obvious constitutional remedy that we have here. It is why the elections will. There are many reasons why the November 20, why next November's elections are important. And this is one of them. All right. Slate Plus members get bonus segments on the GabFest and on other Slate podcasts. And we have a bonus Slate Plus segment for you today. And we're going to talk about what things that countries, other countries, I've just been out of the country and Emily was recently out of the country. What are the things that other countries do that the United States should imitate? What is it that we can learn from other countries? What niceties do they have that we can borrow? So if you want to hear that discussion, go to slate.com slash GabFest plus to become a member. Slate.com slash GabFest plus. And I'm just going to stand up for America. America first, second, and last. This episode of the GabFest is brought to you by Aura Frames. Are you looking for the perfect gift to celebrate the moms in your life? Aura frames are beautiful Wi-Fi connected digital picture frames that allow you to share and display unlimited photos. It is super easy to upload and share photos via the Aura app. And if you're giving Aura as a gift, you can even personalize the frame with preloaded photos and memories. Aura frames in the notes that I have here says moms like Aura frames. I'm here to tell you that is like the truest statement in the world. I gave my mother an aura frame. She absolutely loves it. She's also always hectoring me to keep adding new photos to her aura frame so that she's got great new photos every week. So think about giving your mother or grandmother or aunt or sister or friend an aura frame for Mother's Day. It was named the best digital photo frame by Wirecutter and selected as one of Oprah's favorite things. Aura frames are guaranteed to bring joy to moms of all ages. And right now, Aura has a great deal for Mother's Day. Listeners can save on the perfect gift by visiting AuraFrames.com to get $30 off plus free shipping on their best-selling frame. That's A-U-R-A frames.com. Use code GABFEST at checkout to save. Terms and conditions apply. The president has been on a tear recently about two subjects, immigration and Amazon. Even by the normal Trumpian standards, his attacks have been impulsive and weird and fox driven on immigration he used the holiday weekend to go all in about a variety of immigration issues that he locked together uh, he threw together a group of asylum seekers a caravan of asylum seekers as they've been called making their way north from central america conflated that with daca with catch and release with putting army troops on the border and there seems to be public policy coming out of this classic a classic Trump uh, impulse policy. And then uh, kind of on a parallel track at about the same time, he has been savaging Amazon and calling for perhaps a revision to a, a deal that Amazon has with the post office. 
essentially because he does not like the Washington Post, which is owned by the founder of Amazon, Jeff Bezos. So, uh, Emily, what, on immigration, where does this all come from? We're going we're gonna to end up with an entirely new public policy based on presidential bile. And from what I can see, it comes out of a mix of uh, Trump's actual own dismay of not getting funding for the border wall combined with people, guests on Fox and Friends talking about particular border things that they don't like, combined with the story of this caravan, combined with Ann Coulter, a former ally of his, really going after him on television, combined with perhaps traveling to Mar-a-Lago Mar and being alone in a room with his uh, very hardline immigration advisor, Stephen Miller. So is that, I mean, does that, is that uh, comprehensive explanation? Or is there more? I mean, does this actually reflect some deeply held set of beliefs that he now wants to carry out in, in policy form? No, I think it's exactly what you said. It's uh, return to the base and also a fear of the base. I mean, and I also think the news coverage totally changed. The New York Times podcast, The Daily, did a great like rundown of you know various newscasters, not just on Fox, talking suddenly about how the president was being strict on immigration and wanting stronger borders. And he loves the idea of invoking the military in all of this. Um, I think it was very effective from his point of view. And that's the other explanation for why he did it. Yeah. And the facts, certainly in that first tweet storm, be damned. I mean, the facts of of the caravan coming because of DACA, which there was no evidence for, and the fact that the caravan wasn't going to make it past the border for which there was no evidence. Now, there does seem to be some evidence, if you look at the border arrests, that they are up th three times from where they were in March of last year. That's because of the weather. Um, that's not a surprise. If you look at the graphs of um, border arrests, they go up at a very, very predictable time over the last many years. Why is this such an emergency situation? It should have been one for which they had a long time to prepare, not just the period of time for which they've been in office, but also many years of policy planning beforehand. Overall, border crossings are down in the United States. I mean, the yeah. notion that there's a crisis here is like a whipped up fake idea. I can't really take it right. seriously. It's not. They're right. down no. since like the lowest level since 1971, I read. In precisely. One, yeah. yeah I, one of the things that I think is the is a terrible thing that a government can do and, and, and something that authoritarian governments do and and even democratic governments do on the way to becoming authoritarian governments or dictatorial governments is to declare emergency what is normal. And I think we're seeing Trump do a bit of that around immigration, that it's not that there aren't problems, but it's that the problems are predictable and kind of normal baseline problems. And it's also not even that the solution that he's proposing is so terrible. I mean, George W. Bush sent National Guard troops to the border. President Obama sent National Guard troops to the border. Uh, it's been done before. Maybe I actually have no, I'm not smart enough to know whether it's good or bad policy, but it's not radical policy. What is radical is, is to put it in emergency terms because that allows you um, rhetorically and then perhaps even in policy ways to, to take liberties and to, to impose um, changes and draconian rules on people that are not good in the long term. The other thing, David, Bringing DACA into a conversation about border crossings is a way of tarnishing the dreamers and letting Trump off the hook for having rescinded the order that protected them and for 
in my view at least, like blowing up the negotiations with the Democrats, which would have given him the wall funding that was his original ask. So there's also in this, you know, there's all these insinuations here where you whip up people's fear of border crossings and kind of, you know, uncontrolled migration. And then you also try to implicate the people who are already here with whom there has been actual public sympathy. So we got a letter from uh, a listener, and I'm sorry I don't have her name in front of me, but she's, I think, a kind of liberal listener. And and her question to us was, look, I'm a, I'm a liberal, but I'm a patriotic American, and I don't think the we we can't have open borders. We can't allow everyone who wants to come in the country to come in the country. And if we have borders, we have to enforce border law. We have to uh, make sure that people aren't getting in here illegally and benefiting. So what is a generous hearted but concerned liberal like me supposed to think? Maybe President Trump is right and that we do need to to be more draconian about this. What is what's your response to her, Emily? Well, so, you know, look, open borders are very different from what we have now that it would be changing, a huge earth-shattering change if that was what we had. There's a whole really interesting debate about whether the United States should have open borders, whether, you know, there, yes, it would be, there'd be lots of population shifts, but it would eventually kind of even out. And could the country absorb, you know, many tens of millions more people who live here? Certainly we have a lot of space. Would the pace of that, if you control, you know, you'd have to think through it. Could it all just sort of like work out in the end? I don't know enough about all of that to have a strong opinion one way or the other. However, what we have now is so far away from open borders. We do not let very many people in. We send people back all the time. And what we're talking about doing if Trump makes the, you know, legislative or policy changes he wants to is a system in which we afford even less due process to people than we currently do. And there is precious little for many, many people. They never have lawyers. They get detained they spend years in detention if they don't leave immediately. You know, you can worry about open borders and think that you have to have an answer to that question thought through. Or you can say, like, in the reality that we live in, we already protect the border strongly. And the debate right now is whether we want to ratchet up the pressure even further in a world in which, as John said, the overall immigration level, illegal immigration is down, you know, to what it was in 1971. And also, of course, we do have jobs for a lot of these people. They are doing jobs at wages that a lot of native-born Americans don't want to work for. And that is like another whole part of this equation. Right. And I think – I mean I do think like on practical terms, you want to – what do you want to prioritize? You want to prioritize getting rid of people who are dangerous so that the people who end up staying are the – people who are the hardest working and most likely to contribute to society. You want to attract the brightest people you can. So visas for students. So focusing on things that that are that are magnets for people who are likely to come and create good jobs and build businesses here. I do think you want to worry, and this is where I think liberals have failed. I think you do want to worry about pockets and ghettos and the and and non-English speaking areas of the country. I actually think that I don't think that conservatives are wrong to say that it's reasonable for people to worry about about uh, towns and cities that change very quickly and where the longtime inhabitants uh, are you know face a, a whole new set of, of migrants and that have changed the culture of those cities. I think it's a perfectly legitimate thing for people to worry about and that the country should 
be concerned about. Um, so that's what I would say. Let's turn uh, now to the other target briefly of President Trump's ire this week, which is Amazon. So he has been savaging Amazon as he has previously savaged uh, CNN and in fact possibly even derailed the AT&T Time Warner merger because of his attacks on CNN. Uh, and now he's going after Amazon and, you know, alleging there's Amazon's getting uh, unfair but beneficent treatment from the post office as part of its package delivery deal with the post office. And clearly the only reason he's doing this is because he doesn't like the, what the Washington Post is writing about him. And he's he is displacing his anger on the Washington Post onto Jeff Bezos, the founder of Amazon. He's hoping to pre- get you use this pressure on Bezos, perhaps to change the coverage in in the post, which is terrifying. Like that is dictatorship 101. You get the media class to do your bidding by threatening their pocketbooks. Bezos so far seems unfazed, but man, I do not like this. Uh, no, don't like it at all. But also, And also, I think you can add a second bit to that, which is that it used to be the case that um, conservatives particularly and Republicans criticized the interference by a president in the private market full stop period for whatever reasons. Now, the the president has already, this president has already done a number of things, picking various companies and putting his finger on them for various reasons based on his view of economics. But in this case, it's based on his specific, uh, this goes, this is in a new category. And so there's a philosophical reason for why even the president's allies should be alarmed by this. uh, In addition to the underlying First Amendment uh, reasons you should be alarmed by it. Yeah, the other thing is it's just so um such a <laughs> bad thing for us to have to wonder about whether that, you know, AT&T merger is being prevented for because the president doesn't like the news coverage in CNN. Like we should be able to trust the government to be looking into very complicated questions about antitrust and whether, you know, a merger will create a monopoly or a threat of a monopoly without the fear that this is all being influenced by the fact that President Trump doesn't like the way CNN is reporting on him. The fact that Congress is allowing this, that there, you know, is sort of like alarm from people like us and people in the media world and, you know, plenty of well-meaning commentators out there, but there's no consequence for Trump in doing this. And the more normal it gets, like the worse it is for the country. Right. And the flip side of this is Sinclair, the conservative broadcasting network, which is rolling up uh, TV stations around the country and it's getting really a no look-see from regulators about it. Possibly, possibly because it's a outlet for presidential propaganda, for conservative propaganda. And propaganda is a strong word. But I don't know. <laughs> I think you could go And it, it may be that, that, that that's allowing it. A, regulators are not paying as much attention. In a presidency that's really rife with corruption, administration that's rife with corruption, where you have a president and a family that's getting rich at the trough or, you know, expanding their businesses in the way that Jared Kushner seems to be, where you have people like Wilbur Ross possibly benefiting from work that they're doing in government and certainly advisors. Uh, what's his name? The the advisor I've forgotten now who's getting rich. And you have then penny anti-corruption of the sort that Scott Pruitt and Tom Price. Uh, this is a kind of parallel, which is the, be- the belief that President Trump can use his public office, his public power to exact private revenge, using the power of the presidency to do it. And that's as bad as getting himself rich off of it. It's a, it's a form of corruption 
at the highest order and it's right, and not to troubling. mention the possibility that he's chilling negative media coverage or making it even more likely that CNN will cover live his next rally in a swing state, um, which they did again recently. And then when you think about Sinclair kind of rising alongside Fox and having another right-wing tilting um, television network with a lot of influence, that is changing our media landscape in a way that may have real political implications. And it all is just kind of happening right in front of our eyes. And Sinclair is is seeking to buy part of Hearst, right, which would give it 72 percent control of the market. So there is a there is a space in which the federal government will have to rule, as they are in the AT&T Time Warner case, about consolidation and where you could imagine Sinclair getting favorable treatment if this narrative plays out. Um, the narrative that says basically Sinclair is incentivized to do the president's bidding or at least do things that make him that please him because they basically want uh, that deal to go through and not have the government get in the way. It's time for today's Lucky Land Horoscope with Victoria Cash. Life's gotten mundane, so shake up the daily routine and be adventurous with a trip to Lucky Land. You know what they say, your chance to win starts with a spin. So go to LuckyLandSlots.com to play over 100 social casino-style games for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Get lucky today at LuckyLandSlots.com. Available to players in the U.S., excluding Washington and Michigan. No purchase necessary. VGW Group. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. If you're Donald Trump, how do you solve a problem like Scott Pruitt? Scott Pruitt has become an ethical headache that's a funny term. That's a funny term for this administration. But even by the Gambino family standards of corruption that characterize this administration, Pruitt is starting to stand out for his gross behavior. A um, whole series of stories that have come it's out It's really like about the uh, uh, gushing that just doesn't seem to stop. So there's the fact that he until recently had been getting an extremely sweetheart deal on his Washington accommodations. He was paying $50 a night so that he and his daughter could live at a fancy condo one block from the Capitol, which is just FYI, not market rate for those folks who are thinking of moving to Washington. What would a $50 a night hotel, by the way, in, in the D.C. area, what would that would, room look like? Oh, that. my God. Can you imagine? How, so oh terrible. God. So, And, of, of course, that was from the wife of a lobbyist a, a top energy lobbyist who was seeking a pipeline deal that indeed was approved by Pruitt's EPA. He has also spent a huge amount of money on his own security. He spent a ton to have his office swept for bugs, to have a soundproof phone booth installed. He has 24-hour security, a security detail, which may be 30 people, and he's spending at least $2 million a year on. He sought, although didn't follow through, on renting himself a private jet for $100,000 a month. He also this week, it turned out, used a provision of the Safe Drinking Water Act, the only provision of the Safe Drinking Water Act he seems to care about, he used to give two of his young aides a huge raise after the White House said he couldn't give a, a raise under normal circumstances. He was like, well, I'll just use this obscure provision to give people uh, a higher salary. Yet, of course, Scott Pruitt is a policy dream. I think it is hard to argue if you're a Trumpist probably the most effective of Trump's cabinet members at doing what Trump and conservatives want. He has just announced that with the Clean Water Act, he's going to make all decisions about the Clean Water Act and presumably is going to side with industry more. He's he's limiting the use of 
science essentially and making determinations about things. He's limiting the discussion of climate change and the role of climate change in any decision making by the EPA. This week, he announced that the administration is going to roll back higher mile per gallon standards that the Obama administration put on car makers. So he's doing great. You know what? Actually, sorry, I forgot one example of Pruittian grotesqueness, which is just the most amazing one. He forbids staffers from taking notes in meetings with him, presumably because he wants no record, no record that people can say is accurate of things that he says. He's rejected a ban on a pesticide that linked to nervous system damage in children. He has uh, repealed a rule that gave the EPA broader authority over water pollution. You know, he's done a really good job in doing the bidding of, of energy industry and other industries in ways that a lot of conservatives and Trump supporters would I, like. The, all of that stuff, which you might uh, violently disagree with on the on policy grounds, is at least connected with there are no surprises there. Right. That's what Donald Trump was elected to do. And if people don't like that, then they should elect somebody else. But but the first set of things you um, put your finger on is exactly the opposite of what Donald Trump was elected to do. The president repeatedly on the campaign trail and constantly on the campaign trail. And then and in his inaugural address, he talked about the people who had come to Washington to benefit themselves at the cost of the forgotten man and woman. When you give these staffers raises, which, as Ed Henry of Fox News pointed out in a, in a very pressing interview of Pruitt, the raise was larger than the median income of, of a of Americans. I mean, this wasn't just tiny little cost of living raises. These were big raises for Oklahoma, for uh, people for a 26 year old and a 30 year old who came from Oklahoma with him. Yeah. So I think that's what sort of takes this, I think, to another level. You know, you've now at least got two Republican members of Congress who have uh, called for him to step down because of the, you know, on the grounds of poor stewardship of federal funds. So, Emily, David Shulkin, the VA secretary, Veterans Affairs secretary, who's a minor league grafter, like a, a single A ball Yeah, all he did was go to, to Pru- Wimbledon for free and stuff. Pru- exactly. One trip to Europe. So he's been ousted and Pruitt is still there. What's the difference? Well, I mean, according to to Shulkin's media tour after he was fired, he was trying to prevent the VA from being privatizing. So he was not on board for the Trump policy agenda. That seems like a crucial difference here. And, you know, from the point of view of the Trump White House, for all the reasons you both gave, Pruitt is doing what he was put there to do. He's enacting the policy changes, you know, changing the EPA. Lots of career people at the EPA are leaving or in despair. And that's like what Trump wanted. And so you have this conflict between these policy achievements and success and this corruption, which makes the administration look terrible. And then the other thing is they have a problem. Who are they going to put in there to replace Scott Pruitt, who they can confirm, who's going to continue the quite effective policy march that he's been on? But, you know, the corruption is just so much a theme of this administration. And I wonder if either of you have a theory about it. I mean, I don't really get it. Like, some of it seems so small bore. And I, I mean, how much money did Pruitt really save with this deal from this lobbyist? I mean, I guess tens of thousands of dollars is the answer to that. But, well, you know, he is someone who supposedly had presidential aspirations and wanted to replace Jeff Sessions as attorney general. Why would it have been worth it to him? And the other thing about the fancy travel and the private jet and like the super expensive sound booth, I mean, 
Is there something just bewitching about the trappings of government for these people where it's like, here's what you get to do. Here is the sort of, um, you know, swag that like the American federal government has to offer. If you're at the head of one of these agencies, you get to kind of wrap yourself in this cloak of having a huge security detail. That's another strange to me um, part of the Pruitt story. Anyway, I just wonder what you guys think is going on here. Is there just something that makes people who are drawn to Trump prone to grifting? Is that just like a, a kind of part of the DNA of the administration? So you're new to an office and somebody in your staff, and it's kind of all hectic and, you know, uh, you you work for a, a disordered uh, chief executive, which is to say the president. And one of your, you know, in the hurly-burly, one of your aides says, oh, you know, as Treasury Secretary, you're allowed to fly military aircraft. And so you say, all right, and so you just don't follow up now. So that's the way in which you don't necessarily need to be a grifter at heart, but you don't do the extra double checking of, wait a minute, are you sure that's right? So so I think Pruitt, it's clear that Pruitt is benefiting from the overwhelming volume of stories about corruption. The sheer number of stories about penny anti-grifting in this administration. When one person is a criminal, it's a problem for that person. When everyone's a criminal, it's a problem for society. And I assume with this that as long as there's not another round of these stories in the next week, this will kind of all subside. Well, that's the other thing. How job. long does it sustain itself as a news story? I am just uh, – in order to be safe, I'm just checking the news to make sure that Pruitt <laughs> has not in fact been fired while we've been taping this segment. No, he seems to – at least as of today. So uh, let's leave it there. Let's go to cocktail chatter. When – John Dickerson, you're looking back at your old Atari Youth Advisory Board memorabilia with a a nice drink of brown liquor in hand, thinking back on those old days of playing Dig Dug and Miss Pac-Man. What will you be chattering about? And the ET to Mrs. Dickerson. The ET game, yes. To Mrs. Dickerson, who will be the only one accompanying me for that. She will definitely, she will not be listening. (laughs) Yes, exactly. Um, so my uh, chatter is about the story of uh, of one uh, Nick Burchill. He was a naval reservist from Nova Scotia. This comes from a piece in Boing Boing, by the way. And he was in uh, British Columbia for a work-related conference 17 years ago. Um, he was at the Fairmont Empress Hotel, uh, which is a very pricey, highfalutin joint. And he had brought his fellow reservists, friends, he brought them some pepperoni sticks, which are much uh, loved uh, and from these pepperoni sticks are from Nova Scotia. He didn't want them to get spoiled, and so he opened the window of his uh, room so that the cool air from outside could could keep them in pristine condition. I can't wait to see where this is he, going. By the way, this is so exciting. He, uh, <laughs> I'm really. <laughs> he then went out for a, uh, a four to five hour walk, and this is what he returned to uh, upon entering the room. I rem- can I guess? Can I guess? Can I guess? Uh, Sure. No, I think you can guess. Raccoons? Here's how he recounted it. Um, Nick said, uh, I remember walking down the long hall and opening the door to my room to find an entire flock of seagulls in my room. I didn't have time to count, but there must have been 40 of them, and they had been in my room eating pepperoni for a long time. He then discovered, which seems to me to be a an axiomatic point, but anyway, he discovered that spicy pepperoni does not agree with the seagull's uh, digestive tract. And so they had been, while he was out on his walk, covering the room in guano. 
uh, as they reacted to uh, his pepperoni. He then entered the room, which uh, I suppose because he's a reservist, he's he's uh, conditioned to go into dangerous environments anyway in order to try to effect repair upon the situation. And in doing so, caused the birds to lose whatever remaining guano that they had because, frankly, they were freaking out that there was a dude in the room. He wrote that the resulting chaos was a tornado of seagull excrement, feathers, pepperoni chunks, and fairly large birds whipping around the room. Anyway, at one point, he tried to get a bird out the window by throwing his shoe at it. It went out the window and nearly brained somebody on the on the uh, ground below. The reason Boing Boing was writing about this is that 17 years after the incident, Nick was finally allowed back into the Fairmont Empress Hotel, which had banned him as a result of this <laughs> as a result of this event. And his um, inducement to get them to allow him to return was that he gave them a pound of Chris Brothers pepperoni, uh, <laughs> which was, uh, I think, the offending pepperoni in the original case. That's awesome. Emily, what is your chatter? I have been thinking a lot as I but many other people have been doing about Martin Luther King this week. It's the 50th anniversary of his assassination in Memphis. And um, if you want to just like read intellectual material about his legacy, I recommend when I mean, there's been so much good writing, but I really like um, the stuff Van Newkirk has been writing in The Atlantic. But I want to actually recommend a book that I read this week that I just was so special and excellent. It's called Reading with Patrick. It's by Michelle Kuo. And it's a book about Michelle's experience. She was a teacher in the Mississippi Delta. She went she went there with Teach for America. And, you know, we sort of have a stereotypical notion of how that story goes. But that's not Michelle's story. Her story is about leaving the Delta and then learning that one of her former students had been arrested for killing someone. And returning to the Delta just essentially to be with him. He was in jail and she wound up spending a great deal of time with him in jail, kind of going back to their teacher-student role, but also moving into a role with him. It really is like it's the book is called Reading with Patrick because it's about her discovery of the um, poetry and other literature that they're reading together. And he writes some just amazingly beautiful things himself that are included in the book and probably its most powerful passages. But I just wanted to read this little bit that Michelle writes about herself when she's trying to decide about whether to return to the Delta or not. And at the time, she she had graduated from law school and she's like wrestling with decision and she writes, and then you left. You justified your leaving by saying you wanted to learn the law because it was a powerful language to know. And perhaps you can make some broader change. But maybe you've forgotten the language you started to learn in the Delta, the one that allowed you to connect with people from different circumstances. This is a powerful language too and maybe you've forgotten it. Maybe this is the only language that matters. It's not shameful to be motivated by the feeling of being needed. Don't block out your desire to feel a part of what is raw and vital. Just don't think. This really spoke to me I, for reasons in my own life of feeling more and more like these personal connections we make across boundaries of race and class are the most important things, the things that change our own worldview the most, just wake us up to human potential, but also like to our own um, – the limitations of our own world. And it's hard to do this kind of connecting. You make a lot of mistakes along the way. And this book is full of Michelle Kuo's insight and reflections about that. And I just really took it to heart and recommend it. All right. 
That sounds great. I my chatter, but briefly uh, at the last show in Portland, I mentioned that Atlas Obscura was doing a bracket around the most valuable mundane invention in history. And just to update those of you who were interested in how that turned out, it, the finals turned out to be sewer versus paper. We kind of predicted that, right? Yeah, that's right. Our audience voted sewer at that uh, at that show. Because everyone should vote for sewer. Yes. You never get a uh, chance. But that's not my real chatter. Vote my real chatter sewer. is that, sorry. My real chatter is that I was sitting at uh, <laughs> she's having a little fun. Home. <laughs> I was sitting at home uh, dun, dun, last night. Dun, dun. Sorry, it's not that exciting. And uh, I was just happened to be looking at some books in my house, and I saw on um, a table my favorite book in the world. And I, I, I may have even chatted about this before, but I want to just recommend this book to people. It is a photo book. It's called Ancient Trees, Portraits of Time by a photographer named Beth Moon. And it's a black and white photography of the world's most incredible trees. And it's just incredible. So there's the the dragon's blood trees of Socatra Island off of Yemen. There's the Avenue of the Baobabs in Madagascar, which is just a place that I'd long to go. There are these majestic oak trees from England, these you know six or seven, 800-year-old oak trees that have the girth of a, a train practically, the Bothorpe oak, the Majesty oak. There's the bleeding yew of Nevern, the Nap Hill weeping beech. And then my favorite tree, of course, which is the General Grant, which is a huge sequoia uh, in California. So Ancient Trees, Portraits of Time, it's a beautiful book that will, is, will soothe your soul whenever you open it. Is the Loblolly Pine known as the Eisenhower tree in there? Probably not. I don't think it is. The Palm Beach Kapok is in there. Mm. The Kapok tree of Palm Beach. That's a, that's a good one if you want a good American tree. There's a, there's a bunch of the ones in Nevada, which are the oldest bristlecone pines, which are gnarled and barely look alive, but are cool. To residents of the state, he knows it's Nevada. He's just messing with you. Oh, my God. That is our show for today. The GabFest is produced by Jocelyn Frank. Our researcher is Izzy Road. You can follow us on Twitter at SlateGabFest. For Emily Bazelon, John Dickerson, I'm David Plotz. Thanks for listening. Remember, we have a show in St. Louis on May 2nd. Tickets at slate.com slash live. Okay, round two. Name something that's not boring. A laundry? Ooh, a book club. Computer solitaire, huh? Ah, oh, sorry. We were looking for Chumba Casino. That's right. Chumbacasino.com has over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Forward, prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, this is Dahlia Lithwick, host of Slate's legal podcast, Amicus. If you're listening to this show, you might be interested in Amicus's live show that we're hosting in Washington, D.C., on Tuesday, May the 14th, my colleague Mark Joseph Stern and I will be talking to some amazing guests, including Sherilyn Eiffel and a sitting state Supreme Court justice, all about how originalism, a relatively recently invented way of interpreting the Constitution, has taken over the Supreme Court and radically reshaped the law. It's been doctrinal rocket fuel for the conservative legal movement and facilitated the rolling back of abortion rights, the expansion of gun rights, and the obliteration of the separation of church and state. 
And as another wildly consequential Supreme Court term careers to its end, the court's originalists are on a tear. But there's something you can do about it, and we hope you'll join us in D.C. on May 14th to explore the possible pathways out of the current situation. Go to slate.com slash amicus live for tickets. 